Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. In this episode, I speak with Lisa Robertson, a Canadian poet and art writer whose work I first encountered through an essay collection of hers I came across just after I started architecture school. It's called Occasional Work and Seven Walks from the Office for Soft Architecture, and I've got to say, it remains one of my most favorite books in part because it's about Vancouver, the city I grew up in, but mostly because of the way in which Robertson describes urban space. She is a poet of surfaces, tracing over seemingly quotidian environments to reveal their most florid and ornate complexities. If, as Robertson has described it, architecture is the language of concrete and steel, then soft architecture needs a vocabulary of flesh, air, fabric, and color. It's about civic surface and natural history. It's about social space, clothing, urban geography, visual art, and the intersection of all of these. Soft architecture presented to me a kind of attitude or disposition towards architecture as something simultaneously sensual and political and deeply engaged with broader cultures of design, much in the way that Scaffold, this podcast, aspires to be. So you can imagine how happy I was to have had the opportunity to talk with Lisa about her work. The real occasion for the interview, though, which was actually recorded over two sessions this past summer, was the publication last year of Robertson's first novel, called The Baudelaire Fractal, which is a loosely autobiographical book that really feels like a distillation of the ideas Robertson's been developing in the works of poetry that preceded it. As you can probably tell, there was a lot to cover, So I've broken our conversation into two parts. The first, this episode you're listening to now, focuses on soft architecture, among many other things, I should say. And the second part, airing next week, delves deeper into the Baudelaire fractal itself. So without further ado, I give you part one of my interview with Lisa Robertson. I hope you enjoy it. Maybe the best way of starting the conversation is by touching on the way I first encountered your work. Um, And it's through this book called Occasional Work and Seven Walks from the Office for Soft Architecture. And I wondered if, just for um, an audience who's likely unaware of the book and of the project, if you could help explain what it is. Okay. Um, What these essays sought to do, generally speaking was find a way to energetically describe and document the changing urban fabric of the city of Vancouver um, that I had been witnessing through the 1990s. Um, 
I had been very interested in and influenced by the work of the French documentary photographer Eugène Atget. And um, Atget was documenting a changing Paris, um, changing because of Haussmann's urbanization projects that ended in um, 1870, I think. And then during, um, during Atje's life uh, included the urbanization that was going around the excavation of the metros, the um, Paris metro system, which began in um, 1898 and opened for the first time in 1900. So um, I began to think that as a writer, I would like to do for Vancouver, what I perceived Jay had been doing for his Paris, which is to create an archive of um, the kinds of spaces and, and surfaces and situations, urban situations and architectural forms and interiors, which um, seemed to me to be disappearing. The kind of Vancouver parallel to this this disappearance, the Vancouver parallel to the changes in Paris that Atjay was responding to, um, consisted of, in my city, um, an explosion in real estate development, um, which began with the sales of the Expo 86 um, um, site, which was over 200 acres in the heart of Vancouver around the waterfront um, to a Hong Kong billionaire by Vancouver, um, by, by the city of Vancouver. Um, and then the subsequent development and, um, and flipping of these sites um, by offshore interests. So what was happening um, during Expo after Expo and during the development of the site was that Vancouver was completely changing from being um, a, a lumber town, a sawmill town, um, to being a sort of world-class city. And um, so the um, socioeconomic makeup of the city was being um, profoundly manipulated by City Hall. Um, and um, the situation of those of us who were artists and writers living outside of um, institutional structures or like institutional superstructures um, was changing a great deal. You know, we used to be able to live on very, very little money and have fabulous apartments and, and rent great collective spaces and mostly, uh, give our time away to creating culture in the city. And increasingly that was becoming impossible basically because rents were going up and up and up as, um, as this new development situation was um, changing the um, urban economy. So um, I basically wanted to document through written descriptions um, how the city was changing. And um, I set this up as um, a series of the kinds of texts that architects write. 
um, which is to say site reports, proposals, and manifestos. I was really interested in the sort of modernist history of the architectural manifesto. Um, you know, you see it in uh, Le Corbusier, um, Frank Lloyd Wright, Richard Neutra, and um, for me, very influentially in the 90s, um, Rem Koolhouse. Um, I was really influenced by his uh, delirious New York, um, specifically first, and then by small, medium, large, extra large. So um, that's how the Office for Soft Architecture began. And it was a very pleasurable project because part of my work as an architectural office was to um, convince the curators and editors who were approaching me to write for them that it was a good idea to um, let me write as the office and publish as the office. And so I was inviting them to consider that what they were extending were architectural commissions. Um, so that was part of the process of writing. So e each of the texts was commissioned. None of them were written just on spec, really. Um, and each of them was, was the result of a series of conversations with the um, commissioning um, institutions, organizations, and with the artists whose work they were responding to in many instances. So there were a lot of um, studio visits and uh, walks and dinners, um, various kinds of events together. So when I, after I'd written a couple of these um, early ones in around 1998, 99, I, uh, I began to um, conceive of it as a future book project. Um, you know, I, I'm a, a freelancer who publishes books, so I try to, uh, I try to bend my uh, freelance income generating writing into, into um, um, designs for future book publications. So it's kind of one of the ways that I can do both things at once. Thanks for that introduction. I, I think it's worth me trying to I guess, explain to a certain extent how I felt when I first encountered the work, which um, um, I guess in a word was just totally enchanted and excited about the possibilities of looking that you propose through the writing you do that um, you seem to be implying is architectural and that is the kind of remit of the architect to start to see the city and to see um, urban life and also to see art in a certain way, um, to see lived experience in a certain way. Um, you refer to this, I think, as a texture. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, understanding a certain kind of texture of lived experience. And I think for me, coming out of a background in English literature and entering an education in architecture, this book became my linchpin in a way, or my Bible that I carried around with me <laughs> to just remind myself that there was a relationship um, mm -hmm. 
a very strong one, uh, or a possibility of seeing uh, writing and architecture um, as entangled in a really productive way. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting to hear from you is that it's a kind of mourning as well, um, or a lament for the loss of a certain kind of urban space or a certain kind of city. Um, and I see you hesitating a bit. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of project for posterity, which is something I don't necessarily feel as much when I read the essays now. Yeah, because I w- wanted to document something that I felt and that I recognized was disappearing, didn't mean necessarily that I wished to lament its disappearance. It was more that it seemed that this time of intense transformation and transition could yield kind of artifacts of perception and consciousness that were um, unusual and uh, um, generative um, of of kinds of plenitude and happiness. Mm. So it wasn't like a memorializing or a, or, or a retrospectively sort of, you know, good old Vancouver, too bad it's disappearing kind of project at all. It was more in, that I wanted to try to recognize the um, extreme variability of the present time of writing and living mm-hmm. in the city then as being um, already filled with uh maybe unacknowledged um, um, kinds of knowledge about how to live, how to, um, and how to shape um, urban space and experience. Mm. So I wasn't deeply concerned about losing things um, per se, I mean, the the whole history of Vancouver has been a history of real estate development since 1885. The first mayor was a real estate developer, and most mayors have been involved in real estate development since then. So there never was some sort of great, you know, um, classic period of Vancouver where everything was wonderful. I mean, if you read um, Malcolm Lowry's uh, um, novel, um, um, October Ferry to um, Gabriola Island. Mm, I haven't read that. Um, it was written in nineteen in the forties, but it wasn't published until nineteen seventy. But he's talking about real estate development in the forties mm. and mm. how it's changing the lives of um, artists and writers. Mm. Um, and it seems so familiar to me when I read it, like, oh my goodness. So this has been, this is actually the reality of Vancouver is that it's a city that is continuously consuming itself in order to produce, um, capital. Mm -hmm. So what, what I wanted to see, what seemed different about Vancouver than say, you know, the great European cities or even great. Eastern um, North American cities, Toronto, Montreal, New York, Philadelphia, whatever, is that its history is a history of um, of intense flux and very rapid change. I mean, the at the time I was doing 
my research for the Office for Soft Architecture project, the average lifespan of a building in Vancouver was 14 and a half years. <laughs> so, so like there's nothing, there's nothing like that in, you know, Paris or New York or, you know, may, maybe, maybe in London now in, in the city, um, that, that might be true. But Vancouver was sort of at the cutting edge of, of a particular expression of, of global capital in its relationship to urbanism. Mm. And um, it was, I think that things that were happening in the history of Vancouver from like the 1880s to, till the 1990s are what are now happening in, in other um, Western cities. Mm -hmm. And so the, the question was more for me, um, not, not to um, elaborate a position of nostalgia and situate um, urban culture and identity in, in a nostalgic um, retrospective framework, but to look at the fact of um, an unstable fluidity as perhaps generative of possibility. So using the kind of master narrative of capital against the centralizing and, and authoritative, authoritative uh, ends of capital. Mm. It also makes me think about this idea of utopia and mm. how typically we tend to understand utopia as being elsewhere. And it also has a kind of tinge of nostalgia to it. Mm. Um, um, but utopia is also present in this project, the Office for Soft Architecture, yeah. but it's present in the present, literally. Yeah. I think what is so exciting about not only the writing collected in this, in this book, um, Seven Walks, but that I've experienced in all of the writing of yours that I've read is this ability to look at the present and start to tear into it, mm -hmm. start to pull the seams apart and uncover utopia <laughs> in a way, or uncover through description yeah. something that is um, um, very strange and very pleasurable that would often go unnoticed in quotidian experience? Mm -hmm. Most utopian discourse is looking at um, a kind of mythologized position of outside as being um, um, liberatory in some sense. And very often that outside is, is in a, located in a historical past. So like if you look at um, William Morris's fictions in 19th century England about medievalism as being some sort of utopian moment of, you know, populist um, access to plenitude and, and the, uh, you know, the, 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 the worthy traditions of making, etc. Mm. Um, but from my perspective, which is um, um, a, a white, female feminist perspective and sort of 
um, lower middle class uh, family background without um, without much of a history of access to uh, without any history really of access to high culture or even higher education. Um, the, uh, the 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 past never was a very um, um, rich locus, <laughs> you know, for working people, for women, um, for people who are not racialized as white. The past very often is uh, um, is is oppressive, uh, if not um, actively violent. Um, so. For me, um, I wasn't interested in mythologizing um, a past instant of plenitude because for me, this is a mythological construction that benefits a really specific uh, status quo. Hmm. Um, and it's, it seems to me that one of the um, one of the the oppressive tools of of a status quo on those it wishes to um, exclude is a uh, is a blockage of access um, for people to their own um, sites of pleasure mm. in the in the present. Um, whether that's and for me. Um, I very often identify those sites of pleasure as being feminized sites of pleasure. So the kind of experience that I could bring to um, a practice of architectural writing um, had to do with um, thoroughly elevating um, aspects of architecture and our aspects of rhetoric that in um, since a sort of modernist moment have been um, devalued as being feminized. So this would be um, predominantly uh, uh, um, experience of ornament, of uh, craft, of uh, decorative values, and of sort of transient and quotidian um, practices. So that's what I really wanted to focus on in this architectural work. You know, what is the relationship of, of color to architect, architecture? What's the relationship of, um, of, of weaving and textile? You know, these, these most transient and fragile and, and um, um, passing um, surface traits which tend not to sort of receive uh, any sort of authorizing um, discourse were to me, both the aspects of the past that I wanted to learn about in order to give a present time um, perception of these feminized traits, a kind of deeper history. So I wanted to look at, you know, what, what are the colors that shitty rental apartments get painted? <laughs> <laughs> and how, how does that, you know, affect a perception of color and an, an emotional, you know, emo emotional experience in the everyday? I wanted to look at um, interesting architectural theories that had seemed to me to have fallen out of um, fashion um, such as um, 
um, suddenly forget his name, the German theorist of uh, um, craft and surface in relationship to architecture. Yeah, yeah. To like look at look at Semper's work and his focus on on weaving and and ceramic mm -hmm. as being foundational architectural um, um, figures. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about the way you use these foundational or historical texts to write about architecture, though, is that you're somehow able to siphon these source texts through a special kind of sieve out of which comes these enchanting poems. Like, it's not typical architecture writing. It's not typical academic writing. It's some other form of writing that is uh, idiosyncratic and feels to me to be entirely your own, which I guess is what any writer would hope to write, but I wondered if we could talk more about your relationship to institutions, academic institutions in particular. And I guess what I want to learn more about is the path you are able to forge towards a life of writing that um, was able to kind of sidestep um, academia. Mm. Um. Well, I have a kind of, I have an ambivalent relationship to academia, um, not psychologically ambivalent, not really, but just, just um, in terms of my own narrative, which is to say, I did study in university briefly. I went as a mature student to Simon Fraser when I was in my mid twenties and um, had a, about a three year period of intense study. Um, and then, in, in the English department and the fine and performing arts department. So I was working on basically a, a, a double, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, I was working in, in parallel ways in English literature and um, art history. It, what they had there, these wonderful courses they called arts and context. So it wasn't um, fine arts, but art was considered, you know, music, architecture, performance arts, et cetera. Um, so that's what I was working on. And, but then I ended up leaving without finishing my, um, my BA. I left just before I finished my BA. I had an opportunity to take on, um, a small bookstore. Um, and I used a student loan to make a down payment on a bookstore. And my plan was to become, um, a bookseller. And in fact, I, I did run, um, this small bookstore that I owned for, I guess six years, but um, the change in the political economy of Vancouver that I discussed earlier affected me specifically in that I, I couldn't um, control my relationship to my overhead and rents kept flipping. And this was happening during the time that um, big box stores were coming in and replacing small independents in, in the bookselling trade. So six bookstores closed the year I did. Mm. And um, voila. So I kind of, I kind of deked out of um, academia, to use a Canadian hockey term, um, 
into book selling because um, I was more interested in the way I could participate in the life of the city as a bookseller. Um, and, but then it was um, an, an economic failure almost from the beginning, bookselling. <laughs> so the way I kept my bookstore open for six years was by um, uh, writing for the visual arts. And at that time it was uh, quite well paid. Uh, it's still paid the same rates now as it was paid in 1990. So it's not mm. so well paid now. But at that time I could keep my bookstore open by writing catalog essays. And the shop was located in the downtown east side of Vancouver where most of the artist run centers were. And I had a double specialty in contemporary poetry and poetics on the one hand and um, um, the various kinds of texts that people in the visual arts were reading at that time. Um, theoretical texts, um, um, cultural theory, et cetera. So that was my community. And um, um, a lot of people now think that pe a good way to enter writing is by um, is by means of uh, creative writing, um, doing a MFA in creative writing. Um, I'm of the generation where that wasn't normalized really. And in Simon Fraser University where I studied, there was no creative writing. Um, I guess there was at UBC, but I went to Simon Fraser because they had a more lenient policy towards mature students because of Simon Fraser's um, which Simon Fraser University began in the 60s and it had a lot of the um, 1960s values of open access to higher learning. So that's why I was there. So it didn't really occur to me to study creative writing in the way that young writers now tend to gravitate to mm -hmm. it. And so I guess my entry into writing was much more, um, old school in a certain way in that I studied English literature. I um, kind of like a, I was kind of like a 19th century hack. <laughs> I started, um, you know, eking out a living by writing for magazines and, um, you know, writing book reviews, art reviews, um, catalog essays, whatever paid really, I would write it. Um, <laughs> And so that was my education, was um, by um, writing for a commercial setting, but in a very specific commercial setting in Canada with, that was funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and so was supporting uh, pretty experimental um, um, forays into, into essay, writing essays or magazine columns or articles. So I worked out my way of writing um, in that context. Um, you know, I had a column in a magazine in Toronto for, for a couple of years, it was called Mix Magazine. And I just decided, okay, I'm gonna, I, I want to write for Toronto about Vancouver and just to try to make it as engaging as possible, you know? So part of my approach to freelance um, commercial writing 
um, is, is very um, formed by my interests as a poet, because I am, I was going to say primarily a poet, but I'll just say I am a poet. Um, I tried to make each sentence good. <laughs> <laughs> and by good, I meant appealing. Um, mm. And I also want to actually engage and even entertain and even delight a reader. So most of the writing I do, I already know there's readers because it's being commissioned. There is a, a readership. And my way of respecting that readership and addressing that readership that an institution is bringing to my work is, um, is to try to delight them. This brings us back to this fascination you have with the surface of things and with ornament and elsewhere you've explained with the Baroque. Um, all these topics that, as you say, are somehow sites of pleasure that have been feminized. Mm -hmm. I guess I want to try and pull us towards this theme of surfaces and how it relates to this idea of subjecthood, which is another interest of yours. Mm -hmm. And I guess what we're ultimately going to do is arrive at the novel, <laughs> the Baudelaire Fractal is a place of talking about that. But I think I need a little help here because pronouns are, are another um, interest of yours and not in the way that maybe they're talked about quite often today in terms of gender neutral pronouns or, or, or trans pronouns, but more to do with specific pronouns like I and you yeah. and how the I is generated through text and through speech acts. Mm -hmm. And I feel like um, what I want to try and understand is how um, this interest in the surface of things can bring us around to a conversation about um, the shaping of one's self or sense of self or one's subjectivity as well. And I need, I need you to step, I need you to intervene now and make this more clear. <laughs> okay. Um. I would use the word subjectivity more than I would use the word self. Mm -hmm. And I think that for me, one of the big differences is that subjectivity circulates among people. Um, subjectivity is uh, uh, enacted collectively and is received and distributed and um, played upon and complicated, ornamented. Um, by experience between individuals, so not within individuals. And my thinking about subjectivity in this sense, as well as my thinking about pronouns, um, comes really specifically from um, my years of reading and study of the French linguist, Emile Benveniste. And I, I started reading Benveniste um, 
not a super long time ago. It would have been maybe 2008. Um, through a single essay of his, an essay on rhythm. So to back up a little bit, I was I began to think of the uh, of the problem of prosody, uh, say a, a prosody being a description of rhythm in language, um, as an interesting problem. A because I'm a poet, so it's a kind of topic that comes up within within poetics or the discussion of poetry and B because I had been trying to write about noise in the city and I'd made a series of sound recordings in Paris at the sites of um, photographs by Atche and I wrote about that in uh, an essay of mine that was published in an essay collection called Nilling so I, I wrote an essay called Disquiet, which is about noise in the city. And the thinking in that essay comes from my experience of making sound recordings in Paris. And I think I made most of those recordings in the year 2001. Um, so in trying to describe the experience of listening to noise in the city, I, I tended to use the word prosody. And um, a friend of mine questioned the looseness with which I was using this term. Um, guy named Jeff Gilbert, who teaches at the American University of Paris, pointed out to me that you know I wasn't being particularly careful with my vocabulary and what did I mean by prosody? And I thought, well, actually, I can't really say. And he said, you know, you should read uh, Henri Mechanique, who was. Um, uh, Michonique died in, um, I think, 2007, something like that. But Henri Michonique is a, was a, um, a poet and a linguist who um, talked about rhythm. And he talked about rhythm in as, as a social movement, not just as, as, a, as a measure um, within um, um, oral expression. He talked about it, rhythm as uh, cultural circulation. And I became deeply interested in Mechanique's work, began to try to translate some of it simply so I could, I was at that time teaching in, in California at California College of the Arts. And I wanted to share his work with my students. And I found that the, there was very little translation and what I could find seemed unreliably unreliable to me, badly translated. I, I couldn't really account for what, mm. you know, what it was saying with my students. So I actually started translating uh, one of his essays with one of my grad students in order to work with her and to use it in a pedagogical setting. And it very quickly turned us, uh, my collaborator, her name is um, Avra Spector, it turned us um, towards Benveniste, who was a huge influence on Mechanique. So we began reading Benveniste, and then I've continued to read Benveniste since then, because he basically blows my mind. <laughs> Many of things that I've thought I could um, define or understand in very unambiguous and, and you know, kind of unremarkable ways, such as, you know, what is rhythm? 
or what is the pronoun I? What is the pronoun you? What happens in the relationship between I and you in speech or in writing? Mm-hmm. Benveni's completely turned upside down, inside out, in the most elegant and erudite ways. And I was totally seduced mm-hmm. by, by the, the, the um, rigor and suppleness combined of his, um, of his scholarship, his erudition, and by what trying to understand him was doing to my thinking. So um, it gave me um, different, very different ways to rethink uh, things that I had I'd felt very familiar with, I, that I'd felt comfortable with. So I've been, I love sentences. I consider the sentence as being my main um, zone of um, making and my main, my main perceptual tool as well. Um, and I'd been engaged in a study of sentences for years and was really interested in transformations within the structure of sentences, the, the difference between a, a 18th century sentence and a 20th century sentence is vast. So these things really animated me and, and stimulated me in my own learning of how to construct sentences. But the kinds of... Um, the kinds of assumptions and, um, and, and rhetorics that I brought to my making and thinking of sentences um, were, were radically queried and destabilized by what I was learning in reading Benveniste. So I've, Benveniste sort of has, has formed a, a a new, for me, um, series of ways of um, rethinking my own central topics. This has all happened since I finished the um, soft architecture work, which I finished in 2003. Um, So just a few years after that, I was reading Benveniste. And um, I was just beginning to um, take on the complexity of his thinking and of Masonique's when I was writing the essays in Milling Mm. after my friend um, Jeff Gilbert directed me in their way. And I guess I could say that the Baudelaire fractal is is taking on more of the kind of questioning Mm -hmm. that... um, that um, Benveniste in particular has opened up for me vis-a-vis subjectivity and pronouns. There's this description in, in one of the essays in Nilling about reading, mm-hmm. uh, which I just want to read out. As I read, my self-consciousness is not only suspended, but temporarily abolished into the vertigo of another's language. I am simply its conduit, its gutter, this is a pleasure. And I feel like it's in these moments where you describe these very intimate, very deeply subjective experiences, where my mind starts to be blown in the way that maybe yours is by 
theorists like Mechanique, mm -hmm. and we start to maybe better understand um, the ways in which um, decadence of the surface that plays out through projects like soft architecture and this deep pleasure in describing mm -hmm. the 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 um, the kind of florid and detailed surface of things um, brings us closer to um, I guess this this I guess the strangeness of subjectivity as experienced when one reads another's description. Mm -hmm. And once that other description starts to, I guess, flow through the reader or receiver, mm -hmm. there's mm -hmm. this there's this false authorship, or not false, mm -hmm. but um, uncanny sense that the listener or the reader is the one generating the description. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think this is, in a way, the premise of the Baudelaire fractal, where the main character, um, Hazel Brown, wakes up in a hotel one morning to the realization that she is the author of all of Baudelaire's works. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's not, um, it's not in a way an unprecedented sensation. I mean, it's been yeah. reported by, I think, is it Baudelaire and his experience of Poe? Yeah, yeah, he described that having that feeling when he started reading Poe as a young man, not maybe not that it happened all at once as it, um, happened to Hazel Brown in a hotel room waking up, but um, that for Baudelaire, the experience of reading Poe was like reading texts which um, he was about to write himself. Hmm. Um, and I mean, in a way, this is the sensation we all have when we read yeah. good work of any kind, where we feel yeah. like uh, it's simply the sensations we have which have finally been given voice in a way. The, the inklings mm -hmm. or the hunches that go often undescribed in our internal mm -hmm. lives um, that are, are then kind of articulated by someone else. And there's a sense of that being the possession of the reader as much as the writer. Mm -hmm. And now I'm starting mm -hmm. to understand more your, your idea of subjectivity as being shared or dependent on... Um, I guess in a way the kind of relationship we're exhibiting right now through conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the point about, you know, pleasure. <laughs> uh, if we go back to that quote again, because I feel like this is maybe our way in, um, to be a conduit for someone else's language, to literally become a gutter, um, is of course a very pornographic way of putting mm -hmm. it, or of, of situating the reader or receiver. And, and to end this sentence, or to end this kind of statement with the simple sentence of this is a pleasure, I think it takes us maybe to back to this description of certain um, sites of pleasure as being feminized. Mm -hmm. And then thinking about, I guess, the readerly experience as in some way a feminized one that you then mm -hmm. are able to invert into a position of authorship. Mm -hmm. um, there's a long history of, um, of um, a denigration of and also uh, a blockage of uh, female reading. Um, Rousseau talks about um, 
so something along the lines that, you know, it, it, any young girl who picks up a novel is already destroyed. Um, or we can read in Flaubert's Madame Bovary, how Emma Bovary basically destroyed herself um, by reading novels. <laughs> um, and we know that, you know, women weren't even admitted into um, universities and English departments until the 20th century. And like speaking of um, the Oxbridge uh, formulation or, you know, really admitted into any universities until the late 19th century. So there's, there's a long and actual history of, um, of um, institutional refusal of female readers. And so the girl or the woman who reads is um, already a transgressive uh, figure. Um, if one happens to be a reading female as um, I am, um, and one is interested in historical accounts of reading and readerliness and um, of discourse, you know, you, you find yourself um, outside of the um, authoritative um, um, structures that situate reading in, in institutions and frame its um, political possibilities. So what do you do if you're <laughs> one of those for whom uh, reading has been historically disallowed? You know, if you're, if you're a person who has been uh, forbidden access to reading and yet you do read, what does that mean? Um, it, the, the difficulty for me, and probably part of the reason I didn't continue in a university career is, is, it is more in, in bringing my intensely visceral experience of being a sort of outside reader into line with um, academic uh, discourses. Um, not that I am against academic discourses per se, I probably over idealize um, the sort of disciplinary um, frameworks that permit a lot of really fabulous work to be done. But personally, I have not found myself to be at ease in them. Hmm. Um, so although my work has, um, has been accepted within those frameworks and is, is, is taught in them and it circulates within them, so I can't, I can't really sketch my, you know, make a claim for myself as being some sort of, you know, marginal figure who's got nothing to do with academia, because um, that would be a, a, a misrepresentation. Um, mm. I, I get a lot of short-term gigs in in pretty. Um, um, posh settings, let's just say it, you know, like Cambridge University supported my research that ended up in, as being my book, The Weather. I've taught mm -hmm. at Cambridge, at, at UC Berkeley and at Princeton. So, you know, I mean, these are not marginal places. And yet I always have a, a discomfort being in them. Like I have the typical imposter sort of syndrome because I 
I don't have a BA and I consider myself to be more community taught um, by a you know, really fabulous, smart and exacting network of peers who are writers and artists. Um, so, you know, what's my relationship to that institution? I'm inside of it and I'm outside of it at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, and this kind of mirrors also just my, a, a more general history of um, the female reader. You know, she's both inside and outside of literary history. She's the, 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 the topic of narratives. And she's also, um, um, she's both subject and object of, of narratives and institutional frameworks. Mm -hmm. So there is all that. And then there's also just the fact that to me, reading is an intensely mysterious and bizarre and, and uh, <laughs> I mean, reading as a practice how can we explain what goes on? You know, we learn to do it. We're, we're brought into a world of reading when we're somewhere between the ages of say three and eight, depending on, you know, family and school and, and peculiarities of the individual. Um, and then we have a relationship to it for the rest of our lives. Um, and even if, if even for those who um, have um, not had, had access to learning how to read for people who have been termed illiterate, they still are in a relationship to literacy, you know, so um, by default. So I'm interested in this um, mysterious, it, I don't know how to understand what happens when we read. And yet I feel that this process that I have been deeply immersed in since I was, you know, let's say five years old, uh, bringing, you know, home as many library books as I could carry in my arms in any given day and just plowing through them, which has can. You know, I mean, I'm just about 60 now. So for 55 years, I've had my arms full of library books <laughs> and I've been immersed in this um, activity and I still can't really say what it is hmm. at the same time as I feel that it has, it continues to totally change me. And, um, And I hope it, it continues to, but can I describe what happens as, as, I'm, um, as I'm performing it, as mm -hmm. I'm engaged in this? Mm. I probably still can't, but that essay that you're referring to in, in um, Filling, which is called Lastingness, mm -hmm. was simply trying to describe what happens as I read. And, um, and it, it takes as it's kind of set, it's operative set, three books that I kind of discovered that I was reading at the same time, as one does, you know, all of us who are big readers, or even people who aren't reading very much, are reading wildly disparate kinds of texts, you know, whether these, these are, you know, technical instructions or you know, um, all the things we read on the internet all the time having to do with news and health and everything. 
you know, so we're, we're, we're reading a lot of stuff all of the time, all, all the time. And in this instance, the three texts that I was reading um, were Lucretius's On the Nature of Things, um, Pauline Reage, uh, The Story of O, and um, uh, Hannah Arendt, um, her book, The Life of the Mind. So one a work of philosophy, one uh, work, a sort of work of speculative science, you could say, in the case of Lucretius, who was mm -hmm. a materialist um, scientist, or was writing a poem of, of, of um, materialist science. And Pauline Reage was a pornographer. And I was reading Pauline Reage because um, I was trying to, um, I was trying to get comfortable in reading French and I was speaking a lot of French because I was living in France, but I hadn't really crossed over that sort of boundary of difficulty of, you know, being so aware of what you're reading that you can't actually become absorbed in what you read. Like, oh my God, I'm reading French. Oh my God, I'm reading French. <laughs> Am I reading French? I don't think I'm really reading French. So somehow reading porn... <laughs> Um, um, help me. I, I started out by trying to read the newspaper every day and it really didn't help me. <laughs> mm, mm. And so I, I was in a bookstore that, um, a used bookstore that specialized partly in erotica. And mm. I found as I was browsing through their stock that I was reading really easily <laughs> <laughs> in a way that I just wasn't when I was reading Le Monde or Liberation. So I, so I bought this book and also, you know, I mean, I knew it had this um, esteemed history um, as, a, as a work of literary erotica and I, should, I thought I should read it. So I brought it home. So I'm reading these three texts together. And so how are they intersecting and what are they, um, what are they saying to one another? And what is happening to me as a reader while these um, forms of language are intersecting within, within me, within mm -hmm. my consciousness. Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's, it's astounding that any one of us um, has um, some kind of freedom to perform this experiment at any time. Mm -hmm. It's kind of my, you know, foundational um, amazement. It's probably why I, why I write. Um, because I um, don't understand what reading is, and yet I am utterly and thoroughly seduced by it. Uh, that's exactly the sensation I have when I read your work, which I think is why, for me, it's challenging to actually to have a concise conversation with you. <laughs> Because it's not, I think the experience for me is rooted in sensation first. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a leap that, be, that needs to be taken to kind of translate that into a mode that's accessible, first of all, I guess, to you <laughs> as I speak to you, but then also to the audience who's listening in, who I can guarantee you if they're still listening, are totally befuddled, but hopefully intrigued. And this is this is because I think um, that it's a kind of writing and a kind of, I guess, attentiveness to one's own subjective experience of, of reading or 
or of just daily life that um, we're increasingly um, deadened to, or that mm-hmm. it's a kind of awareness that's increasingly muted, I think, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because of the way we consume text now and consume yeah. images now and consume yeah. daily life now? I've During the span of my life as a um, publishing and published writer, so say between 1990 and the present, I started publishing when I was about 30. Um, I, um, I've seen um, an intensification of um, the concept of access or accessibility when it comes to culture and when it comes to literature. Um, and there has been a high degree of normalization of culture in, um, in the, the guise of a supposed accessibility, mm-hmm. which is um, cultural products, whether you know, they um, have to do with the performing arts or um, film or writing or other, um, or the plastic arts, probably architecture as well are subjected to a a regime of accessibility, which is determined actually by market values. Mm -hmm. So there's a a flattening out of difference within the realm of cultural making, um, which presupposes a kind of, presupposes how people have access to culture and what kinds of people have access to culture and what goes on in the minds of those people. So, And it also is assuming a need for a kind of simplification, kind of narrowing. Mm. And um, I used to be involved when I lived in Vancouver with um, with, um, arts groups, arts collectives, a writing collective, uh, visual arts. And so I I was in contact with the people I was working with, uh, with funding bodies, and was um, coming across this... um, regime of accessibility um, that we had to subject our work to. And I began to think, you know, what, what is it that I want to address in a reader? I want to address what is most complex in a reader. And I come from the perspective that I firmly believe that every single person is equivalently complicated. <laughs> There's no sort of, there's no sort of, um, it's, there's no easy being. There's there's no, you know, there's there's no, uh, there's no single way to do this thing of being a person. Mm -hmm. And I want my work to address the complexity of its receiver. And to me, that's, um, that's the most generous thing I can do, both generous vis-a-vis my own writing experience, because I have to give myself the space to make work. But insofar as I'm making work that um, will be received, will be read, what I want to address in the reader is um, their most ornate complexities. And I, I know um, that we all have access to these things in our lives, like what, what we actually have access to within our own 
um, consciousness and within our collective experience and within our aesthetic experience is so ornate as to be practically unspeakable. Mm. Um, the way that we bring language and memory and sensual experience um, and cultural knowledge, political proficiency um, into an always befuddling and wild mixture is in every case totally unique. So I do not believe in the market and especially not as um, not in terms of um, a readership or a receiver for um, cultural work. Um, because it is a reduction of human experience. So I'm looking um, when I make work to, um, I'm, try, I'm suddenly losing grasp of this architectural term. What is the term that Vitruvius used that he defined architecture as being? Oh, um, so it's firmness, Commodity into light. Commodious. And commodious, I knew. Commodious. I I read that this was one of your favorite words. I love it. I love it. And I got it from Vitruvius. And Uh it made me sort of, sort of, you know, commodiousness has now kind of, um, as as a sort of receptive potential in architecture that architects had to create this notion of, of, of a commodious architecture, uh, architecture that could receive the most of human experience, has been reduced to the notion of commodity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, you know, uh, the commodity is what, what moves with, with, um, with the, the least um, tension and the least uh, conflict. So I wanted to move away from commodity and back to commodiousness. So I kind of like appropriated this term commodiousness from Vitruvius and architectural discourse. And I use it. And for a long time, it sort of became a key way for me to, you know, frame the way I wanted, I I was making work and, you know, how can I make this work more commodious? How can it receive more complexity? Um, How can it have uh, a, 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 denser, richer social existence. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, rate it on iTunes and spread the word. My sincere thanks to this project's Patreon supporters. As you likely know, I'm officially working with the Architecture Foundation now, so we'll be turning off the Patreon account. I can't tell you how grateful I am to those of you who have, at any point over the past year, chipped in to keep this project going. Thank you so much. Special thanks to the Architecture Foundation for their support. Thanks as always to Scandalin. And if you're still here, thanks to you for listening. All right, I'll see you next week with part two of Lisa Robertson's interview.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.